0: For companies to succeed today, they need builders, and builders need tools that allow them to innovate. The problem is most cloud vendors don't offer the range of tools builders are looking for. Amazon Web Services is the leading cloud service provider, giving builders the reliability and security they need. AWS pioneered cloud computing over 10 years ago to help any business from the smallest startups to the biggest global enterprises create their own applications and manage their workloads. By listening to what customers want, AWS is adding more features and services than any other cloud provider while consistently reducing prices. So if you'd rather focus on creating a business instead of an infrastructure, check out podcast.aws. Learn how AWS can help you build a better future today and let builders build. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by digital media. I'm here with Jason Calcanis, podcaster extraordinaire. I have a lot to live up to here. Hi, Jason. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Give, give us your full, not your full bio. Yeah. Just give me your two-sentence Wikipedia, the top of your Wikipedia.
1: Well, you can go right to the controversial section because oh, it really? seems like two-thirds of my Wikipedia page is controversy. Just tell people, everyone, everyone who's listening knows
0: what you do. Yeah, but in I'm case, an angel, they don't.
1: angel investor in 150 companies is what most young people know me for today, but people who are over the age of 40 know me as uh, the Silicon Valley reporter. I started a magazine when I was in my 20s here in New York. In between, I did Weblogs, Inc., which is a blogging company that did Engadget. If you have a reading
0: gadget, or you're hanging out at AOL and reading something that's not HuffPo, you're probably reading something Jason helped start. Sure,
1: we sold that to them and um, then I started company, Mahalo, which got incredibly big, incredibly fast, and got smaller, even faster, and then iterated and made it inside.com, and I've been tooling away at that startup for what seems like a lifetime.
0: Decade, I think. And I think of you as, as, among other things, the guy who invested in Uber. One of many. It is
1: a defining moment in my career.
0: So you invested in Uber early as an angel investor, and it's you probably were Probably the life. third
1: or fourth investor in Uber. Um, I met – I know Travis for 20 years. I knew him as a journalist and I had interviewed him famously when he was doing a company called Scour. Scour was Napster except he had this clever idea to have it um, also support media types like video or PDFs or documents. And he got sued for a quarter trillion dollars, $250 billion, the largest lawsuit in the history of media at the time. I don't know if there's been a bigger one. That's a good claim to fame. Uh, yeah. And I sort of can tip you off onto uh, you know, one of the defining characteristics of Travis, who is a very good person. I know he's been much maligned recently, but he's a fighter and uh, he tries to do big things. And I interviewed him on the night Michael Ovitz's people had threatened <laughs> to beat him up, literally. And he's told the story. This is when Ovitz was running CAA. Well, Ovitz had invested in Scour, not knowing. What they did, I mean, this Michael a, didn't
0: understand it. This is a that classic much. Los Angeles investment. This technology stuff sounds cool. Well,
1: and then of course Hollywood Reporter and Variety call up and say Scour has stolen the Last Action Hero, you know, eighteen thousand times. Uh, what is your message? You, you know, you worked at Disney, blah, blah. and he was like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. And like, you know, somebody on his team had uh-huh. invested in it, and then the guys came and were like, told Travis that he ever mentions Michael if it's his name, they're going to break his legs.
0: You know, Last Action Hero is a terrible movie. They should be thankful that someone was distributing that thing for it, free. In this
1: day and age, it would have been like something where they would have released it on BitTorrent to yeah. get an audience.
0: It's kind of worth watching now. Because it's so yeah. terrible. It has a great scene at the end where it's running through the... the uh, or is it the beginning where they're running through the field, shooting a gun? Who knows? I remember this. It's terrible. Um, We're dating ourselves. I want to talk about your entire Wikipedia entry, but, um, <laughs> but I do want to sort of start with Uber. How do you get in a position where you can invest in Uber. I know you were talking before, you've got a book coming out about how to be an angel investor. Yep. And it, it should be one chapter, right? Invest in Uber, now you're done.
1: Not exactly. I have actually a theory on how to invest and I've worked on it for the past five or six years. It turns out I'm probably a better angel investor than I was an entrepreneur, but I did okay as an entrepreneur, hitting a lot of singles and doubles along the way, one home run. But uh, I have a theory about angel investing, which is basically you're investing in the person and that the more outlandish the idea is and the less people understand it, the greater uh, the chances you should invest in it are. In other words, you have to get very comfortable with the concept of losing seven, eight, nine out of 10 bets, uh, which—
0: This is your own money.
1: Uh, yeah. Well, in the case of um, the early days, I had become what's called a Sequoia Scout. So I never considered myself an angel investor, and I passed on Twitter and Zynga, which two of my very close friends, Evan Williams and Mark Pincus, were starting, and I had— advised both of those founders on if they should pick Sequoia or Fred Wilson. They both wound up going with Fred Wilson, but they both were talking to me because they didn't know who Fred was, really. Sequoia Capital,
0: one of the most famous investors in the world. Fred Wilson, one of the most famous investors in the world, had an amazing run over the last decade.
1: And Sequoia passed on both of those investments, and Fred won both of them famously. And I think because of that, I had the ear of Michael Moritz and Doug Leone and uh, a young venture capitalist at Sequoia named Rulof Botha, who had worked at... Uh, PayPal with Elon and Peter Thiel, and was the CFO. And Ruloff and I have become very close friends over the years. He's on the board of Inside, um, and did the investment in Mahalo. And he came to me one day and said, "Hey, you're so good at angel, and you're so good at finding these companies, and you know everybody. You have such a great network, which you get from being a journalist. You would obviously be an amazing investor. Uh, sorry to Kara uh, Swisher for poaching you, but you would do really well because of your network." And, oh uh, me! I was being complimented. I, yeah, I didn't pick you would up do. I you would be phenomenal. Complimenting yourself. No, you'd be phenomenal because your network. Journalists make the best investors because they have incredible bullshit detectors. They ask the right questions, uh, and they have great networks. Typically, and yeah. They going to work with people.
0: I quit podcasting. and going into investing.
1: Well, y- you would get a job immediately. Anyway, point is, he said, "You uh, have this idea. If we give you a bunch of money, would you invest it?" Our money,
0: Sequoia's money. Sequoia's
1: money, and we'll just split the returns fifty-fifty. Uh, and I said sure, what's the catch? And they said, nothing. And I said, I like that idea. And so I just started investing. I invested in 15 or 20 companies. And uh, in that group were Thumbtack, which I was a second or third investor in after Mark was parents, and Uber, and a bunch of others.
0: And not to get too VC nerdy here, but when you're a scout for Sequoia, is the idea that you say, hey, I'm investing on behalf of Sequoia? Or is the idea... I'm Jason Calcanis. I'm a cool guy, and and I'm not telling you about the fact that this was actually Sequoia. Yeah, so at the
1: time we kept it very quiet. um, Only because, not because we were trying to be sneaky, but because we didn't want to have a signaling risk where people would say Sequoia invested in Thumbtack, and now Sequoia is not doing the next round. That's a uh, continuity problem in the venture capital industry that can cause problems. So what they just said was, you're investing, you are your LP, you are your limited partner, we're the backer. And so, but then I wound up having my own fund for $10 million, which I just deployed and invested in another 105 companies. But, but on so the own. Uber
0: investment is part your money, part Sequoia's money.
1: It was Sequoia's money, but I get half the return, they get half the return.
0: You get half the return. So you made that investment when?
1: God, I guess that was 2009 or something. 2009. It was the first round they had raised. It was and a $4 million valuation. And at
0: what point, I remember when Uber came out, I remember reading TechCrunch articles about it and thinking, yeah. this is a car service for Bay Area people who don't want to get car service. It didn't seem like a thing to me. When it came to New York, it was an expensive car service. Still sure. didn't get it. When did it click to you that, oh, this is, this is a big deal?
1: Well, it clicked to me that it would be very disruptive for carry car service and those other... Uh, Car service companies because it would take a third of the cost out, and the drivers would make as much or more money and get more rides. And so it it was immediately immediate to me that I thought this could be a billion dollar business, a seventy billion dollar business in six, seven, eight hundred cities. No, I didn't. I didn't actually see that, but Travis did. So I had Travis on my podcast this week in startups early on. And if you watch the investment, I said, you know, I think this could be a billion-dollar company. And Travis says to me, do you think? And they were just going into two more cities, I think Chicago and New York and then eventually Los Angeles. So, you know, but Travis, during that podcast, says, yeah, we're going to deliver stuff. We're going to do food. We're going to do all this stuff. We're going to have everything. uh, And it's going to be a logistics network. So he had the vision from the beginning.
0: Right. I remember that part of the pitch. Oh, you don't get it. They're not just a car service, a logistics network. You keep hearing that. And by the way, they keep playing with it. But it's a car service still to this day. Well...
1: It's a car service. Like they play um, around with food, Uber they play Pool's around with deliveries. More, Uber Pool is more of a bus when you think about yeah. it. You're getting on and off three or four people. Uh, and then if you look at the food in San Francisco, Uber Eats is running the table. And I think in some other cities it is. Uh, and I think that's going to be a meaningful business.
0: So, mechanically, if you have half the returns from this investment, so mm-hmm. it's a lot of Millions money. of dollars, tens yeah, of millions be, of dollars. It would be
1: tens of millions. To
0: you, mm-hmm. Uber hasn't gone public. Nope. I think they've been really restricted in selling secondary shares. Sure.
1: I think there's a very limited number of people who have access to that opportunity.
0: How does anyone cash in some of that Uber stock, which is private but is worth an enormous amount of money? Well, There's there a lot a, of people who invested early yeah, in Uber. I
1: think that they're, they've publicly talked about uh, programs to allow employees to sell and... You know, the early investors in the company, I think, have a different set of rights than the later investors in the company. So a lot of this idea that you couldn't sell your shares was for later investors in the company, and they tightened that up. Mark Pincus was one of the first to tighten up the secondary sale process, is what we call it in the industry, and also Elon Musk tightened it up for SpaceX. So now SpaceX has a very routine, I think it's every six months or every quarter, they allow the trading of secondary shares of SpaceX between employees and outside investors, but it's very controlled.
0: So, are you? Have you been able to pocket any of your Uber?
1: I cannot comment on my holdings in the Uber Corporation.
0: I would assume there's a big gray market for this stuff, right? Where folks who maybe don't have, have the right to you, sell this stuff are probably yeah, lending but, it. Maybe it's off the there's table. There's
1: all kinds of crazy stuff that occurs. I would never do anything like that.
0: Good note because you're you're above board and you did not just win. And I'm friends
1: me. with. Travis, and it's an honor to be and a privilege to be able to invest in these companies. So I always feel like if you're on the team, you're on the team, and you play by the rules. Now, there are a lot of people who haven't played by the rules, for sure, in these companies and have sold things or done these kind of funky instruments. But, you know, those things could cause problems down the road for people.
0: You'd made—well, again, we'll talk about your history, but you've made money a couple different times, significant money a couple different times. Is this your biggest win?
1: Yeah, I think ultimately will want to be my biggest win for sure. But I'm not quitting angel investing yet. And uh, you know a number of the other companies I've been involved with, Uber, uh, in addition to Uber, Dine, Wealthfront, Thumbtack, and, and a whole bunch of $100 million companies that you probably haven't heard of yet are doing really well. And now I invest probably on average – Two hundred fifty to a million dollars in companies, and I wind up owning five to fifteen percent of companies. But so if, you,
0: if you've made many tens of millions, I'm going to guess from Uber alone, okay. right?
1: Well, and Weblox Inc. was a thirty million dollars. Right, sale right. In about I'm saying months. just from
0: Uber alone, right? You made a ton of money from there. All the conventional wisdom is the, is to do well in angel investing is to not invest because you're going to lose most of your money. You've already had a huge home run.
1: Yeah, why not stop? It's a great question. Thank you. Uh, And I think most people call in rich when they hit. So Chris Saka stopped investing. And a lot of other angel investors you know have done blog posts, whether it's uh, Tim Ferriss or um – Tucker Carlson, you know, just angel investing, I'm out. Because it's hard. And it's very hard to sit down at a poker table or a blackjack table where you lose eight or nine out of ten hands. I happen to have the brain chemistry, I believe, that is exactly designed for gambling. And I found an outlet for my degenerate gambling that is actually considered acceptable by society. If people knew the amount of money I gambled playing poker, they would really be absolutely mortified in some cases. So
0: you're uh, angel investing to fund your poker habit?
1: Well, no, I'm up in <laughs> poker, thankfully. I've had a pretty good, couple, pretty good run. But, um, you know, I, I have thought about, hey, do I want to do something else with my life? I happen to get a particular rush out of being the guy who believes in you and other people don't. I get a particular rush out of being part of a team that's three or four people, and when I introduce it to other people, they don't get it and they pass on investing. So if you look at Uber, um, I have. you like them, being
0: an I told you so guy?
1: Yeah, I do like putting stuff in people's face and I do like being a contrarian, not to the extent that Peter Thiel does. But, but you love
0: Twitter for that reason.
1: Well, I love Twitter for that reason. I like to mix it up. I'm an opinionated person. Um, I like to debate. Uh, you know, I'm from Brooklyn, where you live now in uh, Bay Ridge. I think I can say that. You've said it in the yeah, podcast. It's and, not uh, a So- I, uh, you know, I have a certain DNA, and I think that angel investing plays really well into it.
0: I have another "why don't you quit?" question. We mentioned Mahalo, which I, I think I, I myself have written about three different major, three different iterations, yeah, and smaller pivots in between. Yep. Started off as a human powered search engine. Yep, bunch of other things. Now it is a newsletter company.
1: Yep, three iterations basically. Yeah, three or four. Ten years into it. Yeah.
0: Um, again, you've been you were three successful years. twice before. Yeah. You, again, enormously yeah. successful from Uber. What is the point of continuing to, to get this to thing get a return to, to my work?
1: investors who had faith in me from the beginning? So, I if I feel there's a chance that I get them a return, if it's one percent or two percent, I'm going to work like a dog. I've actually recently put my own money into the company because I realized we figured it out and there's a great chance we could return, you know, the amount of money that was been invested into the company and then some. And so, and I like tinkering. So, so, they've so probably
0: written this down right.
1: One hundred percent. Everybody's written it off.
0: They've written it off. Yeah. And, th- and by the way. The standard for a VC investment is a return of zero. Of course,
1: yeah. Nobody, nobody's mad at me that it didn't happen. I mean, Mahalo got to the hundred fortieth largest site in the United States. We had a ten million dollar run rate on AdSense alone, the Google's ad network, and we had. Uh, I think fifteen the million. Idea is, the, units. Idea, the original
0: idea was you can take on Google by having human beings figure out exactly where to and tell you to, to, to go. have
1: search that included more than just ten blue links. So we were right about many things. The thing we were wrong about is exactly how cutthroat Google would be in dealing with other content companies. And they just took a swath of companies from, you know, eHow to us uh, to Associated Content, and they just decimated the entire space uh, with multiple search engine optimization. Uh, Panda updates, et cetera., so it made me a little bit bitter for a while because I felt like I was a big partner to them, uh, but I learned a big lesson lesson, which is those big companies really don 't care about anything other than themselves, and even if you 're friends with Larry or Sergey or Marissa or Megan Smith, I was friends with all of these people you know i, I don 't think it matters your personal friendships in business, and I think I was quite naive as a person from Brooklyn who believed in loyalty um, that they would take care of me and that they would treat me fairly i don 't feel I was treated fairly by them, but it was it was an important it was an important lesson for me as an entrepreneur.
0: Then you were an app at one point. You were a news, yeah, app, so we news decided, app. Yeah, so we decided— Rather than go through every yeah, iteration sure. of hollow, you've been grinding it out yeah. for 10 years. I've written about multiple— sure. One of the problems and, and, is it's made, made money. Go, why,
1: why not stop? Because it, you know the thing is it keeps making money, and I keep getting it to break even and some promising idea. And I really think that newsletters, which is what we're doing now—we have 20 newsletters— um, and. I just had a real profound lesson I learned with the Inside News app, which was you can get 500,000 people to up, to download an app, but only 1% or less will use it a day. And then I realized, wait a second, I took the same information that was in the app and I emailed it to the same audience, and 40, 50, 60% opened it every day. So we just saw this like 50x, and I said, wait a second, there's something there. And I remembered I had done email newsletters in the past, and The Skim and Red Tricycle, one of my investments, are doing very well. So now we're launching one newsletter a week in 2017. We've got 20 right now. We'll have 60 or 70 at the end of the year. And we have a half million opens a week or so and hundreds of thousands of subscribers. And I think it could be just like, and it's it's already close to I break-even. love that the
0: email format comes back in vogue every five years. Everyone sort of rediscovers right. it. Hey, this is a really good way to deliver information.
1: It's a bit of a revenge startup for me, too, because what I like about it is I'm not beholden to anybody. If you look at what's happened to the media space, everybody was beholden to Google for SEO. And then, uh, you know, the Huffington Post and everybody became beholden uh, to social networks. Right. And it's really perverted the nature of the news business, which you've talked on this podcast many times about. Uh, And I think email just cuts out all of these middlemen. uh, You have
0: a subject line saying, here's what's in the email. You open it, you either like it, and then you open it again next time or you don't. You're done.
1: It creates a profound uh, difference in how journalists do their jobs, which is if you hit send and you are just in a panic about people hitting unsubscribe, you focus on quality. If you're trying to game social media, you're like, "What's the most salacious headline that I can trick somebody into clicking?" So if you look at what Gawker did and the sort of downward spiral of media that Nick Denton led, um, and then Huffington Post sort of joined, this spiraling to the bottom of playing fast and loose with process journalism, printing whatever comes into the tip line, and not doing actual fact checking or being fair in Jason, any way. Jason, people
0: had salacious journalism since there was since there was for a sure, press. but Before they didn't drag print print
1: everybody press. else down with them. And if you mm. think that, you know. Now you have journalists who, a whole generation of journalists who think it's okay to just print whatever comes into the tip line. You're part of a very old school organization. I
0: still find it fascinating that you're putting your own money into this thing because you could walk away. You could restore uh, old cars. Yeah, but
1: just think about how glorious it will be when I sell this and I put it in everybody's face.
0: All right. That's motivation at least.
1: I'm a very competitive person and you'll become aware of who you are over time. And I realize that's not a bad thing to be a competitive person who doesn't want to lose. You just have to know when to turn that on and when not to. And I've, I think I've learned that over the years: is there's a time to turn it on, and there's a time, you know, to not. There's sometimes you need Dennis Rodman on the court, sometimes you need Steph Curry. All right.
0: So, using that metaphor, yep. We have a brief timeout. We're going to hear from one of our sponsors. Oh, great. Today's show is sponsored by Mack Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks you'll ever wear. I'm wearing the socks right now. Jason, where's the shirts? You buy them with your own money, I Jason, buy right? them
1: uh, about a dozen at a time, the black shirts. Every year, I buy a dozen Mack Weldon shirts, and then uh, at the end of the year, I give them away, and then I buy 10 more.
0: Who, who, who takes your used shirts?
1: Uh, there's like some charity thing where we donate clothes to. like
0: That is an extra lucky charity because Mack Weldon products are awesome. They're they last of, forever. They feel great, made of antimicrobial fibers, you smell. Awesome in them.
1: I do. I do smell awesome in them. Thanks for noticing.
0: They're there. You can wear them for whatever you want. You can wear them to podcast if you want. They're easy to buy. You go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code Recode. That's MacWeldon.com. Promo code recode. Jason, could you imagine not liking these Mac Weldon products?
1: No, I love the shirts. Actually, what I did do also was I took a couple of the old ones out of rotation. I, I keep them at the gym. And so I wear Mack Weldon shirts on the treadmill. I mean, that's- You're
0: a stylish dude. That's if, how fly If for some reason you bought this stuff and you don't like it, here's the, how it works. You keep them, Mack Weldon sends you your money
1: back. That's like a money back guarantee, they would call that. Except it's like a whole nother level because you keep the product.
0: Yeah, I don't really understand how the economics of it work, but that's not my problem. All I know is it works, they're yeah. easy to buy. You go to hey. MackWeldon.com, you get 20% off with the promo code Recode. That's MacWeldon.com. promo code Recode. Jason says to go buy them now.
1: Yeah. Hey, Recode Media fans, I am Ezra Klein here with a listening recommendation for you. My podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, is a weekly conversation with technologists, writers, and policymakers shaping our culture. We go deep and we go weird with people like Tim Ferriss, Tanasi Coates, JD Vance, Tyler Cowan, Stuart Butterfield. You can find The Ezra Klein Show on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Back here with Jason Calcanis. You've been on pause, you've been in timeout mode. Now we're back on. Yeah. So we have you up to date on what you're doing today. Newsletters, yep. angel investing. I have angel a little incubator. Finishing over. my book, angel. I uh, got a book coming out. There's a July. TV show. There was There's a TV a te- show.
1: It's still in the works. Still in the works. Uh, Harvey Weinstein and I are created a show around my incubator, and uh, one of the big networks has participated in the pilot of that. But what does it that mean out,
0: they, 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 they paid had, for it? So something has been shot. It's a Jason Calcana something talk has been show.
1: shot, and uh, the pilot has been shot. And it came out. You can't. No, I mean, this is how the TV business works. So, one of the large networks paid to do all this, and the way it works is they have like windows of, you know, to execute on. And when you're on one of these large networks, something's got to come off TV for you to go on, and it's sort of like waiting for a runway or you know to be able to taxi to a gate. And that didn't happen in a certain amount of time, so now the rights revert back to us or Harvey and he can put it in another place, and so it might wind up in another place. But you may have seen me doing more CNBC. and
0: You like talking. You, you I podcast, podcast, You podcast. great, yeah. It's got to kill you that the Gary Vee is going to be on TV.
1: No, it doesn't. TV. I'm happy for him. Because you, you and him.
0: Gary Vee are the same I got business. offered to be on that show. Yeah? Yeah. You got, you got offered to be on the Apple TV show? I did. Before Gary Vee?
1: I'm not sure of the timing of it, but— You were going to be a judge? I was right down to contract and, you know, with this other show with Harvey Weinstein, and— I kind of feel like I need to be the only guy or the guy <laughs> on the show yeah. and that's not because of ego only um it's mainly because I think what I do is unique and I didn't want to do a shiny floor shark tank rip off uh-huh. I kind of feel like they did that it's great um, but I think a lot of people are trying to be a little bit derivative. I wanted to do well, something truly na-
0: unique. That's the nature of TV. That's one of the well, reasons no, it's, it's hard I mean, to make a TV talk show, right? Everyone says, well, we'll just do Charlie Rose, but faster or younger or, some, or cheaper. I wanted
1: it to be authentically... Who I'd rather do something that's authentic and unique, and so the approach that I had with Harvey was... The people who shot it was very interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen the like twenty four seven series, the Pacquiao yeah, yeah, yeah. getting ready yeah. on HBO. They do this incredibly gloss, cinematic, yeah. cinematic twenty four frame per second, so it looks like a movie. That's how we shot it, and we shot it with those people. So and is it a talk show?
0: But no, it's with? me
1: and my incubator. With you know, to, without giving too much, here are the seven companies in my incubator, and we're working on building these companies. So it's not
0: Jason talking. I mean, it's no, talking, but it's not no, a No, I have other show.
1: opportunities around that that, you know, may happen in the future. But I have my podcast that does close to a million dollars a year and as for full-time people. So when people come from radio networks or TV networks and they want me to do a talk show, it's typically they want to pervert what I do in the podcast and I don't, I just said it before, you know, obviously I'm post needing the money. So I want to do something authentic. I like working with my team. I reach 150,000 people every episode of this week in startups and it's funded. It's profitable and it does well and I control it and I control my destiny. So I'd rather keep playing the long game. I've been doing my podcast for seven years and we're 700 episodes in. I do it twice a week. I'm getting better and better. I try to get a little better every episode, get better guests, have better conversations, be a better uh, host why would I go to like some network that has less and then they want to pervert it and make it stupid and corny? If I want to go three hours with Chris Soccer or two hours with Travis from Uber, I want to be able to do that. And I don't want to, you know, um, have somebody just sort of put me in a box. Now, that being said, I have enjoyed doing what I'm doing yeah, on CNBC. Yeah, if you're on CNBC,
0: you're in a box. You're in a 90-second box.
1: I'm in it. Well, you know, it's not 90 seconds. That was, like, kind of the rub there. They were like, hey, come on for 90 seconds. And I was like, N- you know, NF.
0: Not enough. To-. You can swear. I just
1: said, no. I mean, come on. I'm going to come across town. I'm going to wake up that early. I, I When I do—people don't realize this, but when I do CNBC, I do a meeting with three of my brain trust people— from 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. to talk about the topics and to refine my position and to really do research. And oh, then you're not just on, showing
0: up and bullshitting?
1: Uh, no, no. I mean, the reason why... But, I, you, I think
0: you're doing it wrong then.
1: No, I think actually the reason why they've invited me back and give me 15 minutes, sometimes 20 minutes, is because I actually am prepared. And so in talking to some people who've done really well in radio... They said, you know, it's interesting that you're doing that. I was talking to somebody who had worked with Howard Stern a lot um, and who had been in the industry for decades. And he said that's exactly how Howard works and other people. They put hours and hours into 10 minutes or 20 minutes of show. And so I think – I don't know if I want to be a news anchor on a CNBC. I don't think that's my role. I'm more of a commentator. But, you know, if – I wound up having a talk show on a CNBC or a network like that talking about what I'm a specialist in, which is angel investing in private companies. That would be a lot of fun for me. So I'm, I'm open to all possibilities right now.
0: You, you are awesome at talking. You're awesome at selling. I remember thinking of, I had a list of like really great sellers, like if I needed someone to save my kid's life and they could if they could Negotiator. close a sale. No, seller. Seller. Okay. Seller. You tell a great yeah, story, right? And it sure. was you. I can't remember the other ones. Bill Wynn was one of them. Sure. Um, we ended up at a music company, the color. Did you happen to end up in media? Because it seems like you could have been selling condos. Yeah. You could have been selling real estate. You could have been selling whatever. Well, did you want to be a meteor or did you fall into it?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I wrote this book about angel investing, and uh, it's specifically not a biography because I was like 46 years old. It's a little ridiculous to write a biography, and I'm not that successful, so I don't think it's worthy of killing a bunch of trees. But maybe in 10 years, I'll write one. And, you know, I, grew, I it made me really reflect. The book writing process is fascinating because you really you spend 20, 30 days— for five or six hours writing two or three thousand words at a clip and then I was working with one of my best friends um, who came and just read the work in real time as I did and gave me candid feedback and I started reflecting on like who I am and how I got here like exactly to your question and I realized when I was young, I was very powerless, you know, growing up with an alcoholic father who had a bar taken away from him by the feds because he didn't pay his taxes. And I was basically, at the age of 17, my dad lost everything and was on the brink of going to dra- jail for tax evasion. And I think it just became my superpower that I had to fight and I had to be somebody. I had to, I had to get across that bridge to Manhattan and so I so had to be important in Manhattan So was grew, how I So found. you grew up
0: in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. Correct. you seen the movie Saturday Night Fever. That's it. That's, that's where that's, I grew up. That's the whole plot of that movie is these guys are in New York City, but they're so far removed from Manhattan. And it was they're true. in another world. John Travolta goes to Manhattan. It's like going to an alien place and meets a meets a cool girl there. Um, but it's it's totally removed. Brooklyn was not outside. cool. I mean, it, when and we, it's deep Brooklyn. It's way it's out way there.
1: deep in Brooklyn. Yeah, it's like the last stop on the R train, literally, uh, or as we call it, the rarely uh, the the, the N S- trains still the, never. Same. Um, still the same. But you know, I, I used to ride that train into Manhattan, and I was fixing laser printers and setting up computer networks. And I said I would look at Paper Magazine or New York Magazine, and I'd say, "How are these people famous?" What does it mean to be famous? I would read Spy magazine, and, it's, and I was trying to figure out how people got money and how they got fame. And I decided I needed to start a magazine because I was watching Kurt do Spy magazine, Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson, and I was watching David do Paper magazine, and I was watching Graydon do Vanity Fair, and I was watching Jon Winter do Rolling Stone.
0: This is back when magazines were still magazines a big were deal. in the late
1: eighties, yeah. And so a good I started. Couple
0: decades, seventies through the late eighties, that like that was sort of the coolest. That thing That was you could
1: entrepreneurship. Do. And you would be an impresario. The person who ran a magazine was the most powerful person. And so I wound up meeting Graydon, David... Uh, Kurt, and... Uh, how, do you, Jan.
0: how do you meet them if you're a schlepper dude from Bay Ridge?
1: It's a good question. I went to a party, and David Hershkovitz was at it uh, from Paper Magazine, and I walked up to him, and I said, I'm Jason uh, how Calacanis. Do you, how do you even
0: get... in? The, you are literally a bridge and tunnel guy. How do you get into the It was a cool party? party.
1: I knew a girl who I was dating, Trixie, and she got me into the party, and I walked up to him, and I said, I'm a huge fan of well, your magazine. Is that your intent?
0: I want to crash this party and start climbing the Absolutely. ladder?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, w- I was... Beyond a ladder climber, I was the, I was the guy who who would literally go through the kitchen and, and sneak into the party to meet people for I, that for
0: that reason you you wanted specifically to, you wanted, to, wanted to be to start climbing
1: to start climbing for sure I, I you know there's like a I had a, a a competition and a fight in me like the guy from uh, There Will Be Blood that was probably like inhuman and not healthy but anyway I met David and I said David you know the internet's going to be big, I'm, and you know, I know all about it whatever. And he says, yeah, no, I'm, I'm putting Pipeline on my computer. I'm going to have the internet. I said, oh, that's great. Can I put it on your computer for you and show you how it works? And he said, sure, come buy Paper Magazine tomorrow. And I started writing a column for papers. my first writing gig.
0: In your what, early 20s? 22,
1: 23, something in that range. And then uh, he got me into all these parties, and, but I just had to get rid of my khakis and my blue shirts and stop dressing like I was from the Gap because it was quite embarrassing. But I used to carry Paper Magazine in my bag, in my messenger bag. And then when i go to parties— I would take it out to get into the party and show my name on the masthead. This is how ridiculous I was. That was your business card. I, they wouldn't give me business cards. It's just right. a columnist. So literally I would walk to the door, I say, hey, you know, I work for paper magazine. Can I come in? And they would look at me and they'd be like, absolutely not. And then I'd take it out, I'd show them my name on the masthead, and they'd be like, Oh yeah, the internet, that's cool. And they would let me in. It worked like two out of three times. And, which so was enough is, for in
0: mid-90s? Me. It was
1: early 90s, yeah, like 94, 95-ish. And uh, then I started Silicon Valley Reporter, which was a, a 16-page photocopy magazine. And the um, idea
0: was this is, this is a, a newsletter slash community newspaper for people who do internet in New York, which correct. was like hundreds of people.
1: It was – well, we did, interestingly, back to this idea of like trying to get power as a young person who felt to no power and who really wanted to be something in their life. I saw that people made lists, and I was like, lists are important. So I'm going to make a list, Silicon Alley 100. And I made the list, but we only had 60 people. <laughs> so then I started emailing 60. Who was the 60. number one at
0: the, at, on the list? Uh, I think
1: we made Esther Dyson number one the first uh-huh. year and DoubleClick the next year. I thought picking somebody who didn't have a company but was an angel investor and predated it, and she had PC Forum, and I wanted to go to PC Forum, but I couldn't afford a ticket.
0: So you thought all this through. I'm putting a list because people like lists. For sure. Here's how I'm going to pick who's on the list.
1: Right. And so then I said, I'm going to number the list. And everybody in the organization said, don't do that. It's too de- de- divisive. Because you'll upset
0: someone who's number four who exactly. to be And three. I said,
1: exactly. And that's why I'm going to do it. So I emailed the 60 people. I said, do you know anybody who's doing anything in the internet business? And they all replied, well, I have a lawyer. So we put lawyers on the list. I have a PR person. This is Brooke Hammerling's a PR person who's been on your show. I put Brooke on the list. I just put anybody on the list who had any association. Uh, and once I started the list, all of a sudden, people were like, oh, PR people started contacting me. Oh, because where the am I going to be Internet was the list? a
0: thing, but it wasn't a thing you did in New York. And New York was not a
1: place where you went to do right. internet things. If you were ambitious, an internet person, you went out west. Right. So I had the market to myself, basically. Yeah. So, you know, in a vacuum, it was a, it was a great play to become powerful. And, you know, that magazine became $12 million in revenue. I built it off my credit cards and I, I became very powerful. I was profiled in The New Yorker in like a six or 7,000 word piece, which was ridiculous. I like, I
0: like that you're just tossing off the word count because you know exactly how many words that was.
1: It was like 6,400. Larissa McFark wrote it.
0: I know this because I was talking to to Ricky Van Veen and uh, yeah. Josh Abramson the sure. they profiled. Right. I was talking about that experience. And they, they were
1: similar profiles.
0: They've now done a couple of these. They did yeah. one about uh, Brian Goldberg sure. uh, from Bustle. And they're all very similar. They're all about a youngish guy who's making his way in the internet, youngish sure. guys. And they're brash and they're confident. But they're also kind of rubes. They yeah. don't really know what they're doing. There was a great, sure. uh, there was a great example in, in your piece, I remember very clearly, about you having a, a rack of the similar suit, the same right. suit. Right, yeah. Anyway, so, the, so Ricky Van Veen and, and Josh Abramson had, had one of these. I asked them yeah. about, the, about the experiences. Well, Jason called up after it was published and made sure that we knew that, that his profile was longer.
1: For sure, yes. Uh, so and you know exactly how many well, it, was, it was. The funny part about it was, Larissa says, hey, meet me over here. We both lived in Chelsea, and we'll, we'll have a little conversation. I'm going to bring my friend Malcolm with me. So we go, and it's it's... Malcolm from Gladwell. Tip- Gladwell from Tipping Point fame and he's talking and nobody really knew who he was the book hadn't come out yet Tipping Point and um he said you know Jason what you are is you're like a- I don't have a Malcolm Gladwell <laughs> a very but, good but Malcolm it's a very Gladwell. like you know he's kind of up here somewhere and you know it's very interesting you're like a connector there's a guy who's got a thing where he- if you know the number of people it's a Dunmar number and you know a lot of people you're a connector Larissa you should call your piece the connector And she named the piece The Connector. But then I was on Charlie Rose and New York Times and all that kind of stuff. And so I had achieved what I wanted to do, which was to be important. I wound up selling it in a fire sale to Dow Jones.
0: Because you sold it post-crash.
1: Post-crash. A huge mistake. Alan Meckler offered me $20 million for it before the crash. And then I wound up selling it for two or three years' salary after the crash. And so I had two or three years' salary, which... And then 9-11 happened. I was particularly depressed and impacted by that. In fact, I wound up having PTSD and going to therapy for PTSD a number of years ago, but a number of years after 9-11 when I realized I had it, because every time I would hear an ambulance or I would see pictures of the World Trade Center coming down, I'd start crying. Like, I would get very physically upset about it. And my brother's a fireman. He lost a lot of friends. And I've since made peace with it. But after that, I was very particularly depressed uh, about the state of the world. And that became the sort of defining moment of my life was just pre-9-11 and post-9-11. I was was absolutely obsessed with it. Like, it just really bothered me for a long time. Still does. And um, I wound up starting Weblogs Inc. after that because I had nothing to do. Nobody would hire me. Dow Jones fired me right after they bought the company. Was
0: that the plan? Did you know you were going to be fired? I didn't. It you, was you thought you, were gonna, you thought you were going to run the I thought I would be
1: like a Dow Jones person for a year or two and make, you know, 300 grand or something. It was like a big deal to make, you know, hundreds of thousands yeah. of dollars at that time.
0: By the way, still is.
1: Yeah, I guess so, yeah. And, uh, you know, that would be a big deal. And uh, the guy says, I remember it was like yesterday, he's like, Hey, can you come to buy the conference? And uh, you know, it's in San Francisco. I said, Sure, I go to the conference. I said, hey, let's take a walk. So we're taking a walk around this conference in San Francisco. And he goes, you know, I think there's so many things you're capable of. And you know, being here, you're gonna be so boxed in and there's just so much more for you. And I just looked at him, I was like, What do you mean? He's like, Well, we we don't really have a place for you here. We think you should go on to your next adventure. I was like, I have a three-year contract. He goes, and we're going to pay you every penny of it. But you're not gonna be coming to work next week. And I was like, Okay. And then I went to my girlfriend then wife, I was like, I think I've just been fired. She's like, "What? How are we going to pay the rent?" I was negative ten thousand at that point in my life, and then uh, I convinced uh, some friends because I had seen Rafat Ali, who was on the program, who had worked for me for maybe thirty grand when he came out of school uh, at Silicon Eye Reporter. He had gone on and done a blog. uh, This is paid content. Paid content, and he was doing it while working for me. And Rafat came to me, and and I'm an investor in his company now, Skip, which is doing really well. And he said. Uh, hey boss, I know you found out that I'm doing paid content on the weekends and am I going to be fired? I said, listen kid, let me explain something to you. You don't have an editor on paid content. You need an editor. You work for me. Blogging is stupid (laughs) and it will never go anywhere. And you're wasting your time when you could be writing stuff and having editors and listening to the editors who are trying to give you advice on where to put the comma because you don't know where the comma goes. So smarten up. I don't care what you do on your weekends, but do something more. Like get a book and learn how, learn some grammar. I just basically, whatever. You give them the hi-hat. Basically. And then Shani Jardin had been working for me, and she went to Boing Boing. And then I found out they're both making like five, six grand a month doing this blogging thing. And I was paying them, you know, whatever, 30, 40, 50 grand a year at the time. They're making more money working in their underwear from home, half-time, and they were happy, and they were their own bosses. So I said, wait a second. Blogging is going to be Blogging
0: something. thing has legs.
1: And that's when I went... I have to go do blogs. And it was interesting because at that point in time, the only person doing blogs was Nick Denton. So I knew Nick and I went to see him and I said, hey, I have this idea. I want to run it by you because you're doing Gawker. I said, I think I'm going to do business blog. And so what do you think of that? And he's like, well, you know, blogs don't work for making money. You know, you can't have advertising on blogs. People will not accept it. Because at that time, there were no, no, no advertising on blogs and blogging was supposed to be counterculture and no, no advertising. Dave Weiner had said, you know, no advertising. All this stuff was like, uh-huh. there were rules about blogging. And <laughs> so anyway, the next day after I have the meeting with him, he writes a whole blog post about how I am like the worst thing that could ever happen to blogging. Blogging doesn't need a huckster like me coming in and trying to sell it. And he just basically scuttled me before day one. So I was like, that mother melon farmer, I am going to knock him out. Not physically, but I'm going to.
0: You're 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 a, you're a martial arts dude.
1: I am, but I said I am going to get my revenge on him. So then I went and I found a, I went to Elizabeth uh, Spires, uh-huh. who's been on the program, very smart person. I
0: like that Jason is listening to this program every episode.
1: I, I listen to every episode for awesome. sure. Um, well, you know what? There's no media. I'm obsessed with media, so I love it. So I went to Elizabeth Spires. I said, "Listen, how much is he paying you?" She said, "Like 1500 I said, "I'll give you two grand a month." I just got a Mark Cuban's money. You put three hundred into the company. I said, "And I'll buy you a MacBook Air, which had just come out." Of the little manila sleeve that Steve Jobs put it in. And I said, I'll give you a MacBook Air. And she looked at me and she said, Nah, I'm going to go to New York Magazine and write features. And I said, Elizabeth, you're going to go from being the number one blogger in the world to the number 87th most important person at New York Magazine. So Gawker
0: exists. There's, there's Gawker.com. The, Nick actually has a business, even though yeah. he's telling you there isn't one. Exactly. And you say, I want to do more of these. Right. And, and I, I, I'd totally forgotten that you and Nick had this rivalry. So we had for this big rivalry.
1: So, but this is where it gets good. So then I call Shenny out. So Elizabeth turns me down, which is pretty smart. Um, and there's actually a photo of her looking at me like I'm a Martian that somebody published later on. And I think it was like one of the moments I was trying to convince her at a party to come work for me. And Shenny said to me, oh, you, you picked the wrong target. You want to go after Peter Ross. Gizmodo is what's making all the money. And I said, oh, okay. So I go find Peter, and I email him, and I say, uh, high and low. Nice reference. It's my favorite Kurosawa film. Because he had mentioned High and Low in one of his blog posts. And he wrote back, you've seen High and Low? I said, I've seen all the Kurosawa films. Of course I have. I said, can, can I buy you dinner? He said, sure. So I get a reservation at Jewel Baku. I get Peter Ross to Fancy come. Fancy East Village Sushi. East Village Sushi Place. It was the best place at the time. I knew the owner. Um, my friend knew the owner. And so he gets me in with Jack. And I said, listen, I got a big deal I got to close. It's got to be the best sushi dinner We He goes, I got you, Jason. Don't worry about it. We go. Peter shows up with his girlfriend at the time, Jill now his wife and mother of his two kids, and says, um, oh, I was like, oh, you're going to love this place. The best sushi. He goes, oh, we're we're vegetarians. (laughs) Fuck me. So I go to the guy. The best rice you can buy. So I go to the guy. I go, they're vegetarians. He goes, I got you, Jason. He runs out. He goes to the Korean deli on the corner. He comes back with two bags of vegetables, makes the most amazing vegetable thing. They're like, how did you... Oh, they, I said, like, oh, they do vegetable stuff here all the time. I come here for the vegetable stuff. Ben, <laughs> back to being a salesman. So I said to Peter, how much is he paying? He said, $1,500. I said, I'll give you two, and I'll give you MacBook Air, and I'll give you equity. He goes, well, you know, Nick promised me equity. I said, when? He said, a year ago. I said, well, what happened? He goes, well, I've emailed him four times. I was like, well, he's going to screw you, and I'm going to make you a millionaire. Come work with me. I got Mark Cuban's money, and I got the guy who's going to build the software for us, Brian Alvey, who's a genius. Um, and he agreed. So then he says, but I have to... Dude, I, have to, I can't leave until Nick gets back from his vacation because I don't want to ruin his vacation. I got to tell him. I said, what? He said, yeah, he's going to like Brazil with Bjork and all these like fancy people. He's kept talking about it at the office. I said, oh, really? When he's leaving? He goes, oh, he, he's leaving Sunday. He's whatever like. I said, what time? He goes, I, I don't know, like 11 or something. I don't know. I said, find out what time he's leaving. And so he finds out he's leaving. I said, okay, I want you to email your resignation while he's on the fucking plane. <laughs> and I literally did that. He got off the plane and got Peter's resignation and he wrote a blog post about how he had been hosed by me, blah, 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 because we used to always talk about how we were beating each other up.
0: Right. But your, your intent here was not just to fight with Nick Denton. You wanted to make money from blogging, which really still was, I mean, if anyone had heard about it, they thought of it as sort of a, a hobby. It a was a hobby. It, was like, it wasn't a business.
1: It was literally journaling. It was supposed to be your diary.
0: Right. It was supposed to be a personal
1: today. diary. It's what I did, right, before Twitter. Um, but then after that, Nick came to me and he said, truce. And I said, okay. And we had a truce after that.
0: So you start with Engadget. You're writing about blog. You're writing about gadgets. Engadget. Then we did
1: Auto Blog. Just to,
0: it's hard to remember this, but there was a period of time where there was a a perfectly viable business where you would say, "I have the new whatever." Not Mm -hmm. the iPhone, by the way. Just any, literally any gadget there was. We're now going to take pictures of me opening the box.
1: For Unboxing it. was created by Peter Rojas. And, and now, live, now that
0: now that all exists over on YouTube. And but, live
1: blogging was created by Peter Rojas.
0: But it was, it was, it was all a new big deal and yeah. it had real audience and then eventually attracted advertisers. And, and it became a real business. It
1: became a real business. We knew that it was because Samsung came to us and said, we want to buy out Engadget for like 10, 20K a month. I was like, what? Great. Again, we were paying bloggers 1,000, 2,000 a month. And so uh, – but they said, do you have anything in video games? And I, so my sales exec came to me, Sean called, said, do we have anything in video games? I said, yeah, we have a video game blog. He says, we do? I said, yeah, it's coming out next month. So they pay 10000 a month for the exclusive for six months on the video game blog, which we launched as Joystick. Um, and that did phenomenally well. So, and then Volvo did our podcast on uh, Autoblog. So we did the first podcast ever on a commercial so blog. You and you build first, out this network
0: pretty yeah. quickly, right?
1: Well, it was part of my playbook was to go fast and hard and to... Make the bigger companies realize that we were ambitious and that we could execute, and to make all the other players who were trying to make a business out of blogging realize that they would never be able to compete with us. So it was an intimidation tactic, and it was honey for the acquirers.
0: And but then pretty quickly you sold it, right? Like how, how long? Eighteen did it take months you? after we started it, we sold that it fast. for thirty million dollars. Right. So that, okay, that's when the, finally the light went off for me. Like, oh, blogging's a thing. If you
1: think about it, we sold it ten more than ten years before Nick wound up selling Gawker, I'm guessing Nick and I made similar amounts of money. Probably, yeah. Because he had to give $50 million back to the investors. They had to give 30 or $40 million to Hulk, and they had to give tens of millions to lawyers. Yeah, so,
0: and then he's paying some of the employees, apparently, too.
1: Yeah, thank, thankfully. But you know, Nick and I, we got together when I was in New York. I have a certain kinship for him. I, I don't think he's a bad person. I think he went through a dark period in his life where that blog did things it should not have done. And he enabled young people to, you know, go for traffic so relentlessly that they really didn't think about if they were being fair to people or if they were playing by the rules.
0: I think it's more interesting to talk about you than Nick Denton. Okay. We've, we've had a lot of Nick Denton talk anyway, here. And sure. also, by the way, like you were not running a Paragon of Virtue over at uh, Where? webblogs.inc.
1: Sure I was. Absolutely. I <laughs>
0: too. Did you know I want to sell this thing 18 months after I started it? Was that the plan? I was
1: broke. I was negative 10,000. You, and had, you, had, I you had,
0: had Dow Jones money to pay your rent?
1: But I had run through it. Uh, so I was out of that money. And I had the scar tissue of not selling to Alan Meckler for $20 million. And I had in my head that my dad had lost everything. And I had lost everything with Silicon Valley Reporter. And I said to myself, I got to bank a win here. I got to be financially independent. And I had really wanted to be a millionaire by the time I was 30, and I wasn't. And I said, you know what? And, a, and, a, and it's very immature, and I know people in my industry like to say it's not about money. But when you're broke, and your mom's a nurse, and your dad's a bartender, and— it's The only people who say it's
0: not about money people who are already rich.
1: Exactly. And so I was like, you know what? I need this money. I need to transform my life and not have to worry about money again. And so, you know, when the $30 million offer comes from Jim Bankoff, and Ted Leonsis called me and said—my Greek brother—and says, don't worry about it. We're going to take care of you. You know, I was like, i got to just take so this— they came, So
0: they came—so Jim, my boss—hello, Jim—came yeah. to you?
1: Yeah, so what happened was, Jim. Ba- somebody said, uh, a guy named um, John Borthwick, who now runs BetaWorks, was also work-
0: on this show. Everyone is on yeah,
1: this show. So, John Borthwick was working at Time. And I, he said, Hey, have you seen the new Time Warner building? I happened to be in New York for a trip. I said, No. He said, Come up, I'll, I'll buy you a scotch or whatever. So, we had a scotch and we were up there. He says, You know, this guy, Jim Bankoff, at AOL, you know, and Borthwick was doing strategy for them. And I said, No, I don't, I don't know who you're talking about. He said, Oh, this guy over here. and- um, you should go meet him. He wants to do something in blogging. A- and I said, AOL is like kind of a dial-up business. I said, yeah, that business is going away. They need to be a content business. And Jim thinks blogs will be it. And I think Jim had talked a little bit to Denton as well. And so I met Bankoff. He was, you know, super nerdy, mid-level executive, like in a bad suit, like, but he sorry, was- Sorry, Jim. Sorry, Jim. Uh, good friend, though. <laughs> and he was, but he was so smart, like, and so focused. He actually, in a way, was like, a, a more put-together version of myself, a hustler, but in the corporate world. And he wanted to be important. He had started, I think, as Ted Leonsis, as like chief of staff or whatever. And so he was like this internal hustle machine inside of AOL. And he looked at our business and said, hey, that could be the start of this. This could be the start of turning AOL into a content business.
0: We know we know this business is going away. We need to replace it with something else. This right. sort of having this conversation now with Time Warner and Verizon. Exactly. It's, it's somewhat parallel, different
1: it's exactly parallel and they and they basically said this could be the start of something they and what what their what Jim's key observation was is that we were putting together content pieces for $5 each a blog post was $5 at AOL they were spending 3 or 4 hundred dollars per piece of content so they couldn't reconcile this and so once they realized our process was better and we only had five full-time employees but we had four or 500 freelancers they wanted the playbook so they took the playbook And they executed on it. And Brian Alvey, my partner, who had built the software, Blocksmith, then powered TMZ and some other projects that Jim had set up with our software.
0: Show us how to make cheap content. Show us how to make efficient content.
1: Scale content. Content. Scale is the way we would say it. So if you come out with a story about the BlackBerry that's just out, instead of writing one long, thousand-word Walt Mossberg piece, let's break it into ten. 200 word pieces, one about the headphone, one about this, and then you get the SEO lift and you have specific stories and you have a cadence coming out all day long, as opposed to Walt publishing twice a week, right? We're publishing 20 times a day, he's publishing two times a week. And so Jim understood the playbook, so much so that he took the same playbook and created Vox based on it. He, in fact, stole our teams. I mean, stole is, I guess, a strong word. All those
0: people left independently of their own and they just happened to reassemble over at Vox Absolutely not. It was a huge
1: conspiracy. But anyway, um, uh, be that as it may, uh, the it's a very fr- serious rules about team, poaching at Vox Media. The Engadget team became the Verge team. The Joystick team became the Polygon team. All these f- folks uh, he, he he pulled out of there. Uh, and it was fine. You know, like, it's, it's they just all, all
0: walked out the building one day, at one the after same another, time, and they just randomly ended up at the same, another it, building down Exactly.
1: But, you know, Jim um, did very well by me. He treated me very well internally. Um, and I lasted a year there. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a good run for me because I realized I needed to be an entrepreneur. I couldn't be inside. So, there. wait,
0: you s- people don't talk about this enough. So, you finally do get your score. Yeah. Right? 30 million bucks. Most yep. of it's yours. After taxes, you still are a millionaire. Did I well. remember I was at Forbes.com and I just sort of figured out that blogs sort were of a thing. I remember emailing you. Yeah. The sale had happened. Is it true? And you said, come, come see me. I think you were hanging out at the Copacabana. Oh, really? Something. There was some sort of internet gathering. Cool. And then everyone was coming to pay tribute to you. Yeah. So Jeff Jarvis and Esther Dyson. All well, I was of the first the person
1: to actually, you know, and, you know, its I, I had achieved what I wanted to, which so, was I set out to have some power and to have some fun. So how do money. you,
0: how do you, how do you mark that? Right. So how do you, again, like this is, how do you celebrate and then how do you decide I want to do more of this or no, I'm done. I hit, I hit my mark.
1: Yeah. So I, I had to again, take a deep look at myself and look at my childhood and look at where I was and who I was as a person. And I've always been very self-aware and introspective, despite how it may look from the outside, and a little self-deprecating. And I said, you know, I am good at certain things, like starting stuff. And I'm good at seeing opportunities. I wonder if I should do this again. And I had a long talk with my wife about it. And I said... I think I got a couple more of these in me. I'm only 33 or 4 or whatever. So
0: statistically, like, you've already hit the lottery.
1: Exactly. So I said, I think I can do And you're do this not going to do it again. So I have this idea for doing human-powered search, basically combining Wiki with Google. And I said, I'm going to email three people. And I'm just going to see what their responses are. And she said, who are you going to email? I said, well, I'm going to email Mark, because he's my friend and we made money together, Cuban. And I said, and I think the top two VCs are John Doerr and Michael Moritz. And I don't know in which order, because I really had never met them. I said, I'm going to email those two guys, and I'm going to email them my idea. So I emailed Moritz, and I say, I have an idea. I sold Weblogs Inc. for 18 months for $30 million. I have my next idea. You know, We were both at the same conference, but we didn't meet. I uh, was wondering if I could get your advice on it. He called me on two different phone numbers in my in my SIG file and emailed me within one hour. Michael Moritz. So that's,
0: that's very flattering, right? But the idea that, that, that you should go do this again instead of saying, look, yeah. I wanted to be a millionaire. I clawed my way across the bridge or under the tunnel or yeah, both. Yeah. I succeeded. yeah. Uh, I failed once, now I succeeded, sure. that should scratch the itch, right, if you're a normal person, or if you're the kind of person I'm who, who does normal. that to begin with, you want to keep going.
1: You know, again, back to that fire inside of me, I, I kind of felt like I needed to be number one. You know, and So it's
0: I, neuroses, not fire. I
1: Yeah, I mean, on a bad day, it could be neuroses if you're not self-aware of it, and it could make you grind your teeth, which I certainly have done in my life. Or if you realize that you have this in you and you realize where it comes from, which I do, like watching your dad's restaurant get taken away by the feds with shotguns and your dad losing everything as an entrepreneur, it puts something into you. And what it put into me was a fire that I can turn on at any time. And I can at any time be at the top of my game and compete with anybody is what I believe. It may not be true, but I believe it in my heart. And so I just say to myself, well, if I'm not, I'm a top 10 angel investor right now, why not be number one? And I'll just Go for it, and why not try to write the best business book of all time?
0: See, I figure everything you say is sort of half bullshit, but on the other hand, you are doing it right. Like you're still yeah. trying to make Mahalo slash Inside work, yeah, when you shouldn't be, yeah. So no, it's
1: a, it's authentic. I mean, I, the, the by the way, the reason the reason I believe yeah. that you're half bullshitting is because yeah. you
0: told me this once, yeah. He said, "You should do what I used to do with Michael Arrington. I can't remember who else it was. Yeah. We would have a fake fight on the internet once yeah. a week, and we would stake out some side. some didn't, claim. Didn't matter what we believed. It was believed. how we
1: would game tech meme at the time. And we
0: did the, and we, But you you didn't do this with a wink, right? You were well, su- su- such we, as terrible. It must we be started
1: it as." We would, Mike and I, who were very good friends this at a time. This is Mike Errington, the Mike founder Guarante, of, of We were March. very good friends at a time um, before he had his problems. And he would write something and I would write something. We were very similar in our bombastic approach to, and opinionated approach. And then what would happen is because we both had such followings in the blog world, whatever we were fighting about. 2005-ish.
0: And yeah, we're, 2005 so to, the to 2009. blog world is small and if you shout loud enough, people in that world will pay attention.
1: Yeah, and if you have an opinion about something, so if he hates Apple and I love Apple or he hates something Yahoo did and I love it or whatever it is, all of a sudden uh, it goes to the top of tech meme. And then, you know, in the top of... Technorati, which was a search engine and a blog. So we become the top story that everybody piles on. Jeff Jarvis has something to say. Dave Weiner has something to say. Right. It's we- we-
0: pro-wrestling except even the commentating is like becoming part of the, the event. Right. And the people in the audience are becoming part of the event.
1: Right. So what we realized was, oh, we can do this anytime we want. So we would be having a steak or smoking a cigar or walking around Atherton in and, and his crummy rental and house, um, which had like six or seven – you know, journalists in it while he was asleep and he would be up all night blogging and he was a maniac. It was, it was, it was charming in a way. Um, and, uh, we would just come up with something we would want to fight about and we'd take a position and we would just, you know, we'd go for it. Um, we were masters at getting and capturing the dialogue. Right. But now, you know, I, I kind of feel like I just authentically do what I do. So when you see me on CNBC or you see me writing a blog post, I really focus now in this sort of last third of my career on the authenticity of what I'm doing. I was and I was
0: I was making it up before, yeah. but now I'm telling the truth.
1: No, it's not a Glenn Beck thing.
0: It, it, or a Donald Trump thing.
1: We were be we were precocious back in the day, is the way I would say it. We were just precocious. You know, and we and we liked to fight and it was a competition of ideas. Now I don't feel like I'm in competition with anybody's ideas. I think you know having a couple of successes in life sort of Makes you confident in who you are. I'm confident in who I am. I know I'm good at what I do.
0: Speaking, Eric, you you said so you guys were pals. You had a falling out. Yeah. You had a conference business together. Yep. But now you're still
1: doing conference, right? I still do my launch conference. And he, um, we had. He had come to me and said, "I can't figure out how to make TechCrunch profitable." I said, "Do a conference." He said, "I don't know how to do a conference." I said, "Well, I did them my whole career. I'll show you." He said, "Do it with me. Do it with me." I said, "No, no, I, I got to do Mahalo." He said, "Do with me, please. I don't know how to do this. I'm not good on stage. You're good on stage." I said, "Okay, I'll do it with you." We do it. We start an LLC. We do three years. We make a couple million dollars each in profits. And then one day, he's just like seven years, eight years ago, he says, uh, "You're not my partner anymore. You can sue me if you want to." And like an idiot, I sued him, which you know, suing my garrington is like trying to, like, jump on the back of, like, a honey badger, like, you know, he's a bit of a, a fighter. Um, but then he started to have all these personal problems with a lot of women saying bad things about him. And then I knew it was over when one day and uh, Brooke Hammerling told a story on your podcast. He didn't say who it was, but it was Mike Arrington, who said something really horrible about her. And he all
0: you and Brooke and Mike take this one outside.
1: Well, essentially, he said he called Brooke a word that you should never call a woman. And your boss, Kara Swisher, came to me and said what. The F. And you could swear on the show. And I said, wow, there's no way Mike ever called Brooke that word. And then somebody held up.
0: We weren't headed that way. I was asking why you're still why right. you're in the conference business. Well, anyway, you had the, a break up with Mike Arrington.
1: Yeah. Well, no. I, I had done the co- – in 1995 here when I was doing Silicon Valley Reporter, I did a product called Ready, Set, Pitch at sudo.com with Josh Harris. Ted Leonsis was a keynote speaker. And I had 10, found, 10 people pitch ideas. They didn't have the product, just pitch ideas. And that was my idea for a pitch competition. I still do Launch Festival, which is a 10,000-person event. It takes place in April. And the
0: idea is you're telling a lot of would-be entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs, yep. I'm going to get you access to people who can help you, into yeah. investors or press or whoever. All those And things.
1: then do you charge them? So originally, we charged people for tickets. Originally, we let people on the stage for free, which was a big, distinct difference because at the time, Demo was charging $20,000 to be on stage. We said, it's going to be free to be on stage. Since that, since I don't have to make money from the conferences anymore, we allow 10,000 founders to come for free if they fill out a little form. Then we give 140 founders a free table. We give them a free presentation on stage. And we give them a free speed dating session with 10 investors. All that's for free. And then this year we added... Uh, equity crowdfunding, which is now civilians, people who are not accredited investors, 96% of the United States, can now invest. And in, I think maybe 15 of the companies there will be investable through a platform called SeedInvest.
0: So where does your revenue come from? Where we have sponsors. Sponsors. So, so just like... Sponsor-driven? It's, it's
1: all... 100% sponsor-driven and Jason Calacanis-driven. So if we lose a hundred or $200,000 a year, I write it off. I
0: don't need to buy a ticket for launch. I can go for free.
1: You can... As a journalist, you go no, for free. I as, a as a founder, as a, as you go a for free. Joe Schmo, huh? As a founder, you go for free. We give the first ten thousand tickets for free to founders. If you're at a big company, we ask you to pay, and the tickets are three hundred to fifteen hundred.
0: Yeah, I'm a little baffled by the the model where they charge the startups to attend. Uh,
1: Web Summit, TechCrunch, they all charge five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars to the startups, and the startups are so desperate for attention that they fall for it, and it's yeah, really and surprising sad.
0: surprising that it's still a model in 2017.
1: There's always new entrepreneurs who are desperate to get above the noise, and then somebody sells them, and they say, this is how the pitch goes from like a web summit or something. You've been selected to present at the web summit in the VR virtual reality summit, and the founder's like, oh my God, that's incredible. Like, yes, let's set up a phone call to discuss it. They discuss it. They tell them how amazing it's going to be, and then they send them a bill. They literally do it that way. Then when they send them the bill, the founder's like, oh my God, I can't afford this. I'm like, okay, well, we're going to give you a 50% discount on the 15000 it's only 7500 These founders come to me after I've invested and they said, oh my God, we got selected. I said, selected to pay $15,000? They're like, no, selected to pay $7,500. And I'm like, you haven't been selected. You've been duped. It's the same as when you go to Hollywood and you meet with an agent who then says, yeah, you just need to get photos and acting lesson. And they get a kickback from the photo and acting lesson person down the hall who charges you. And that's such a big scam in that industry that SAG and all of those organizations put out warnings, and it's a, it's against the rules for agents to charge their customers. In our industry, the only person who's really ever fought against it is me. So let's say I'm,
0: I'm a clever person with a startup idea. Yep. I want to get to you. Yep. you got a full mailbox.
1: For sure. How do uh, I get to you? The, there's really a very simple path. One... You're going to want to go to founders who I've invested in. That's your number one path. If you go to them, you, get feed- you ask them for feedback. So you, if you can get in touch with Marco from Thumbtack or anybody in my portfolio, Henry from Cafe X, the robotic coffee company. Go to uh, the
0: CEOs of the startups you've invested in. The founders, in. the CEOs, and do say, say, hey. I say, here's what I want to do?
1: You could say, I know Jason's an investor. I have an idea for this. I wanted to show it to you and get your idea and feedback on it. And then maybe if you could invest And, and they must
0: me. get dozens of those a month.
1: They get some. some just enough. like, I listen, I, I, sometimes I feel like I'm Travis and Elon Musk's like social secretary because Anybody who wants to invite them to an event comes to me first because I know I'm friends with them, which obviously I don't forward them on. But sometimes somebody comes up with something that I do need to tell Elon or or Travis about because it is relevant. Um, And so, yeah, that can work. The second thing is to go to somebody I've co-invested in. The third thing is to send me a link to a product. The fourth thing, because I always click on the links, and if it's a beautiful product, I'm intrigued. The fourth thing is to send me a chart that shows some sort of traction or some ability that you know your metrics. So my thesis on angel investing, which I get into the book, uh, Angel, coming out July 18th, plug, um, is people who are craftspersons and who have craftsmanship in their work, they will always have it, whether they're in the early stage or the late stage. So when I first saw Uber or Thumbtack uh, or Wealthfront, you you could see there was some amount of polish and consideration in the product. There always is in those early stages. And so when I see... You know, a particularly uh, well-designed product, or somebody understands their metrics. I know that that person cares in what, some deep what if way. I,
0: what if I know how to make an awesome product, but I am not a sales guy? These yeah. people have to exist, right?
1: Of course they do. Yes, and they and they typically pair themselves with somebody who is a salesperson. Find, find
0: someone who can sell for you,
1: or they uh, they learn it over time. I mean, Zuckerberg was not a salesperson, but the and, and in fact, you know, he he was. The opposite, and you know he got Sean Parker to you know sell him to Silicon Valley famously uh, and he also learned over time, but at the end of the day, metrics speak if it's growing, it's growing, and that's what I've learned about Silicon Valley is like if and people talk a lot about diversity and they talk a lot about oh the industry is biased in many ways. Uh, the number one bias in the tech industry is towards performance, so if you want to trump all the biases that are out there, if you've got a chart that looks like a hockey stick. Nobody cares who you are. They you don't care a, where you come from. You had a from. really
0: provocative and thoughtful post uh, during the Ellen Powell trial. Yeah. Where you were explaining why the VC industry was biased against her, but it wasn't misogynistic. They, they were biased basically for a legitimate reason. Can you, can you tease well, that out for us?
1: sure. I mean, I, I don't remember exactly my position in the piece, to be honest. I read a lot. But um, in Let's general— you, you were
0: talking about the structure of a VC firm. The why it's set up e- not to accept new faces.
1: Correct. What people don't understand about the structure is these are 10-year vehicles. And they're set up more like a poker game or uh, a golf club or a book club, male or female, where a bunch of friends get together and they're set up as a partnership, an LLC. And, and the dynamic is people typically get a couple of friends together who think the same and who want to spend a lot of time together to go on a 10-year journey. It's not like a company that has you know 10 new job postings every month and they are got a process. You add one person every 10 years. So if you look at someone like Benchmark, um, which I think is still all male, they haven't added partners in a very long time. Uh, Sequoia's added some female partners. And so
0: when someone says, it's a boys' club, you say, yes, it is. It's this boys' club. This is boys club is the operative word.
1: And so my advice was, and listen, I, I don't think that that's necessarily right. But what I would say is if they are clubs in that fashion, the best way for the club to get cracked is for women to start their own venture funds. And a number of women who heard me say that have actually started them. And there is a movement now for women to get together and go to other women as LPs and to start these funds themselves. And I think that's a quicker way to cracking this just on a pragmatic basis because of the life cycle of funds. This doesn't mean I agree with people starting only male or only female so, organizations. So that's about
0: the VC world. And then yeah. what do you think about diversity as an issue sort of in the startup world? you still see the majority of people who are getting funded are yeah. white guys who look like Mark Zuckerberg sort of well, famously? Do you, uh, is that important to you as an investor to stop that or it doesn't matter to you?
1: As a cis white male, I can white-splain and male-splain this uh, exactly for everybody who's confused. No, I mean, I'm being facetious here. My opinion obviously does not count because I am it a cis It does count
0: because white... you're writing a check. Well, it That's does, actually. It
1: and so what I'll tell you is um, yeah, what I've done in my life, and, I'm, and, and I don't do it very publicly, I'm quiet about it, is I, there is absolutely a pipeline problem. To say there's not a pipeline problem is ridiculous. Uh, you, If you look... Pipeline
0: problem means it's mostly white dudes coming through the pipeline.
1: Well, also, there's a lot of Indian people and there's a lot of Asian people. So uh-huh. when we, even in our industry, we don't just talk about minorities. We have actually separated into two groups, underrepresented minorities and minorities. Yep. So we've actually parsed and said, hey, of these four minority groups, just picking four, African Americans and uh, Latinos are underrepresented minorities. And a- uh, Asian and Indian people are overrepresented minorities, and white people fit somewhere else. So we're really parsing very deeply what's going on in our industry. So I think the industry takes it very seriously. And for the industry to release the statistics and deal with the pain of having to try to move the needle on these, I think is a very good sign.
0: When you're writing a check,
1: does that factor
0: into what you— Absolutely not. Absolutely not.
1: I will say I do think the women who I've invested in, and I've invested in many women— um, have outperformed the men and take it more seriously. So that is an interesting trend. And I asked one woman about that. I said, you know, you, you, you're really like working really hard here. And like, you're, you're really like doing a very diligent job. I appreciate it. And you're keeping me informed. And she said, uh, well, you know, if, if I don't make this work, I'm never going to get funded again. And I said, I would fund you again. She goes, no, you don't understand. I'm a woman. Uh, I, I have one shot. If I fail here, that I will not get funded again. It's not like being a guy where I get funded, I learned, and I'm going to get funded again. This is my shot. I cannot assume that I'll ever get funded again. I thought that was very telling. But what I've done is, um, if we don't see enough people in certain groups, and Freda Kapoor, uh, Mitch Kapoor's partner, who's also an Uber investor, um, yeah, we talked about it. And she said, you know, Jason, you can change the world because of your position in the ecosystem. You can change the world to be what you want. So if you want to say only CEOs on stage, yeah, you may live and die by the statistics of CEOs, but why not include another group of people on stage? Maybe a different title, product managers, whatever. And so that really sort of got inside my head because I used to have the standard, we only will accept the CEO in our conference, right? Yeah, it's an issue. It's an issue because there's a small number of female issues. You guys struggle this with your event and you're like, okay, are we going to ask Marissa and Meg Whitman and there's like, and Sheryl Sandberg even though she's not a CEO, she's in a very high leadership position um, in a very successful company, are we going to ask these people again and again? And eventually they're going to say, like, I'm kind of busy and I've done every event you've ever done. You struggle to get...
0: Yeah, or the audience has seen them a bunch and of And the
1: them. audience has seen them, bunch. So I'm like, I really don't need to hear from her again uh, or them, uh, whoever it is. So we've worked on it really hard. And the the thing I think that works pretty well is... Everybody sort of creates a box of who they're willing to meet with as an investor. I meet with this type of people so I can be the efficient. What I said to myself is, hey, it's my time. I can do what I want with it. So if a person doesn't fit into the box of where my sweet spot is, what I call the Goldilocks zone, not too hot, not too cold, when I invest, I like to have some level, I like to have the product in the market and have a modest amount of traction, but not Uber, Airbnb-like traction. In other words, not yep. too hot, not too cold. So but if somebody is pre-launch and they're underrepresented, I'll meet with them. And so some people would say, well, wait, wait, you're not gonna meet with guys who are in that stage? And the answer is no.
0: Yeah, so that's your affirmative action, is taking the meeting with someone that you yeah. affirmative know. Affirmative action meet is
1: with. one of those words that has a lot of baggage. And so I think one of the problems with the whole discourse is we're two white guys sitting here talking about it. it whatever words we use, we're gonna get barbecued. Yeah, yeah. And I've talked about it very publicly on Twitter, and I get myself in a lot of trouble all the time, consistently, but it's my time and I can choose what I want to do. And yes, I will meet with people earlier upstream. And I'm actually even thinking about creating more programs. So we're creating something called founder.university. They came out with a subdomain, .university. And we're in that program actually going after people who have the potential to launch companies, uh, who might be in the underrepresented minority groups in our industry, the tech industry, and women, to try to fix the pipeline issue and say, hey, if this is the moment where people are dropping off, which is when they're learning about stuff, but right before they launch, maybe we can build programs in that area, which is exactly what Freda and Mitch do. They have a program out in Berkeley, which I went to visit last summer, where they take people who've been accepted to college and they actually make sure that their math skills and their computer science skills are really good so when they do go to college, they don't fail, that they actually succeed. Because one of the problems is, You'll have these kids who are underrepresented get into college, but then they wind up not doing well in math, or there's some pieces that they have missing. So they kind of tighten the ship, and they just tighten the ship a little bit so when they come into college they're ready and they don't fail in year one. And that's what I think has to happen. We have to just look. And I want to see the world change. i got three daughters. You know, when I... See, you know, I want my daughters to come up and be bosses. You know, I want them to be a girl boss. I want them to lean in. I want them to rule the world. So I want to see the world change, and I know I can impact that change, and I want them to start companies, invest, or do whatever that gives them fulfillment. I don't want them to be limited, and I certainly don't want them to make 85 cents on the dollar.
0: Speaking of time, yeah, money, numbers—we're we're past the one-hour mark. That's of the course. magic mark. We've we'll be back herschorn. for hour two. We've passed. We've <laughs> passed left set. So we're gonna end. One real quick question, number—if you're still listening—here's your bonus for you. Oh, here we go. What is the single biggest mistake someone makes when they pitch you? What's the thing you want them to stop? Um, top of your head come I, on. First yeah. Thought, it, would, it, would,
1: it would be pitching when, you have a, when you're not ready so you have to understand what is the zone in which the person will invest so if you're going to Sequoia they're doing series A if you're going to me I'm doing seed investment you have to know your audience so do the research and understand when I do invest I'm not going to invest in an idea of an unknown person so asking me to have coffee to discuss your ideas is massive turn off it makes no sense
0: I have a thing here's the thing come talk yeah. to me about the thing that I'm making already
1: show me the thing you've made, because I make my decision on craftsmanship. So even if you make an MVP or something very small with your sweat equity, with your own 5,000 hours, 500 hours, $5,000, $10,000, make something in the world to separate you and help me understand that you're going to take this seriously and do a good job. You have to be able to build something and put it in the world. People still are in this wacky uh, belief system that their idea matters, when it does not, all that matters is what you build in the world. You hear
0: that, people? Your idea does not matter. You heard it from Jason yourself. That's it. Certainly Thanks, Jason. This is pleasure. great. Thanks Broke for the hour. Me. You said we should brace for impact. So. Brace for
1: impact. Did I did I succeed?
0: I think I can still walk. I'm good.
1: You're good. Okay. Yeah. We didn't we didn't turn over too many. Uh, no, stones. no.
0: I, we'll we'll see. We'll, we'll see. What, we'll see what the Twitterati. We'll say. see what
1: you edit out. what the executive producer? Anything you're going to edit out?
0: Beth. Beth is not. Beth
1: a, is saying no. We're going right. to go with everything.
0: Thanks to you guys for listening. You're smart. You're awesome. We love you. We hope you love us. Here's our ask. If you like what you're hearing, go to iTunes or Google Play, wherever you get this stuff. Rate us. Subscribe. Review it. That all helps. We can make more free stuff for you guys. This is Recode Media. We were back next week. And at some point, we'll have Jason back for part two and part three. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Hello, Recode Media listeners. I always say in the outro, you guys are smart because you know how to find podcasts like this one. And guess what? I'm right. You are very smart. Here's what I'm asking from you folks. Tell other people who may also be smart but don't know about podcasts yet to go listen to a podcast. Go suggest a podcast to them. This is part of a promotion we're doing this month along with other podcasters. It's called Tripod. Get it? So go ahead tell someone about a podcast you like. Maybe even tell them about this podcast and then tell us what you shared with the hashtag Tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. Thank you.